0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee and I'm Lucy Hounsome. Fantasy and indeed most fiction often involves bitter rivalries, fights over a kingdom or territory, long-standing feuds where people no longer even remember why it began. Such opposing forces are also a key ingredient in organised crime narratives, though they are rarer within fantasy fiction. When it comes to organised crime, my personal reference points tend to be cinematic, cliched as all hell, and, let's face it, about the mafia. Something with Al Pacino or Robert De Niro or hell both. But when it comes to fantasy stories that fall into the organized crime category, I wouldn't even need a whole hand to count the ones I've come across. Fonda Lee's Green Bone Saga is one of these rare beasts, bringing organized crime to fantasy and even more than that, stepping outside the Italian mafia stereotypes and introducing us to an Asian gang-inspired world. So, we wanted to talk to Fonda about why she wanted to merge these two distinct genres and why we all find organized crime stories so fascinating. But before we get stuck in, Fonda, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Sure. Thanks for having me on the show, Megan and Lucy. Um, I am... The author of The Greenbone Saga, it begins with uh, Jade City, continues in Jade War, and concludes with the third and final book in the trilogy, Jade Legacy, which comes out as of the time of this recording in a week, so (laughs) November 30th in the US and December 2nd in the rest of the world. I'm also the author of a number of YA science fiction novels that I wrote prior to The Greenbone Saga. And I live in the rainy Pacific Northwest of the US. It's
0: all right. We live in the rainy United Kingdom.
2: <laughs> I'm gonna say it sounds just like home.
1: <laughs> the lack of sunshine is probably relatable. Yeah, I, I think definitely
0: so. Especially the weather we've had the last few weeks.
1: But anyway, let's talk about organized
0: crime. So when we talk about this, you know, organized crime as an overall. Kind of umbrella term. What are some of the key ingredients
1: to these kinds of stories? I think one of the appeals of stories about organized crime is this idea of a dark mirror society, because you're telling the story of people who live outside of the rules that the rest of us have to follow on a day to day basis, uh, and. Um, yet organized crime is not chaos it's not just a crime story about individual criminals who are acting out of passion or out of evil but a subculture um, of potentially thousands or tens of thousands of people who are working together towards some common aim just like uh, you know a company or a political party um, and yet, there are, uh, and yet they are not following the same rules that those organizations follow. They have their own set of rules. And those rules have to be enforced internally without relying on the law and the police and judges and courts and so on. So what that does is create a, a, a tapestry um, for stories that are Potentially filled with a lot of um, of human pathos and drama and uh, and potential betrayals and turns of fortune um, that you know we cannot normally understand um, in our in our own mundane law abiding lives. Because if someone rips you off in a business deal, in most cases. We get a lawyer and we go to court and we settle it. Um, But if uh, someone rips you off on the payment for your arms shipment, um, you don't have that recourse. You have to go to uh, you know the some some boss who's going to make some judgment to put a hit out on this person. And so everything is just so much more life or death stakes in these stories, Um, and which is why I think we we get where we as as uh, readers and as viewers, are drawn to them because of the high drama and and those very potentially deadly stakes. So some of the ingredients, I think, include the insular subculture that plays by its own rules um, and ha- often has to enforce those rules um, with very strict codes of loyalty and silence um, and, and also... Uh, of course, that means that um, infractions against those rules, betrayals, are, are punished in, in very strict and dramatic ways. And some of the themes that come through are the conflict between um, that sort of outsider life, the criminal, and broader society, as well as the conflict between the individual and the loyalty that they owe to the group. So the trilogy that I wrote, the Greenbone Saga, has some of those ingredients, but not all of them. Um, And the reason is because I uh, wrote a story in which the clans um, are not actually criminal organizations in in their country. They are legitimate um, social uh, groups they have political power. You know they walk freely on the streets. Um, the characters in my book don't really have to worry about um, being picked up by the cops. Uh, and so I did that because I wanted a. I didn't want to tell a story about cops and robbers, but I wanted to use all of those themes that I enjoyed so much in organized crime fiction, um, and those that th- those uh, ideas of this of insular group and strict group loyalty and um, and betrayals and that those high potentially violent stakes um, and bring them into an epic fantasy novel in a modern setting. So the pieces just gelled really well. And one thing that uh, this did for me when I was in the process of writing the books was um, when I look back on the... Organized crime stories that I've enjoyed: Goodfellas and Untouchables and Godfather. Um, as a as a storyteller, if I break those down, I see that the major narrative beats always involve murder, death, and betrayal. So that's just sort of a staple of the genre. And I and that helped me when I was writing because I knew, hey, I know that uh, when I'm planning out this this trilogy and I'm. Figuring out where the major turning points are; those are those are the things I can always come back to. There's always going to be murder, death, and betrayal that's going to fundamentally blow up something in, in the characters' uh, status quo and and send the reader, re- you know, reeling back with with um, shock and raise the stakes even further. Yes.
0: Yeah, so, any listeners who haven't read Fonda's books, uh, as you can see, they're they're very light hearted full uh, <laughs> of fuzzy cuddles and <laughs> not just murder, death and
1: betrayal. <laughs> there are some lighthearted, very, very, very calm and and non-traumatizing moments. I just wanted to put that out there.
2: <laughs> um, I just want to pick up on what you were saying. You're beginning to talk a bit about the moral codes um, and the fact that you described... Um, organised crime as this dark mirror society. But it's the key thing there for me is society that it is still a society and that it, in a way it's not it's not anarchic it's not the complete dissolution of the law but there are new laws there are new codes of conduct the conduct there are new but in fact it reminds me very much of these like you know if you play um any like open world rpg and you join like the thieves guild or the assassins guild there are rules there always seem to be rules in there uh, as well so like you know, you can't uh, kill a brother or sister. You can't uh, steal from another family member. What I would like to kind of ask about, you know, when you were creating your own iteration of this, how did you come up with the idea of a moral code? You know, amongst people who, as you say, are kind of live in the dark. They're the dark mirror of society. They obviously still have to have some kind of rule to to govern their. Everyday lives and their relationships.
1: Well, in the case of the Greenbone Saga, I really um, built everything from the standpoint of um, a secondary world in which uh, there is a coveted magic resource. So um, the the resource in this case being jade. So jade in the Greenbone Saga world is magic, and those who wear it get these enhanced powers that are. Uh, Something that you might imagine in your favorite kung fu films—they can, uh, they have extra strength and speed, and they can um, their they can channel energy into enemies and um, leap great heights and so on. So they have these extra powers, and um, that has kind of separated them from sort of ordinary human beings. And so they have they have developed over time in this world into this warrior caste. And so when I I I used that as the basis for determining um, what their rules would be, and uh, and also looked to our own real world and sort of the honor codes um, that exist in organized crime um, societies in our in our own world, and uh, including things like. Uh, reading up on on like the odes that triads you know take when they join, um, and also um, uh, thinking about like how would this society function in a world where you have certain people that have powers and status that other people don't. So, so a lot of the honor code that exists among the characters in the Greenbone Saga revolve around you know what their duties are to the clan. Um, and the loyalty to the clan, but also they have a code called Aisho, which means that like if there are disagreements, they have to be they're they're settled by like individual duels, and all and also that these people who are endowed with jade are not allowed to harm um, the family members and the civilians who don't have jade. Sort of like that sort that honorable old mafia code of like you know you keep the women and children out of it, right? Um, so that's that is sort of reflected um, in this code of Aisho where you know the the clan um, and its business has their their disputes have to be settled um, honorably in accordance with this code that they share. And those people who don't wear jade, who don't have this power, who aren't part of that society, are exempt from that, and they're supposed to be off limits.
0: Yeah, it's reminding me of um, like. Old westerns, where you've got like the gunslingers and their kind of their special powers, you know, the the ability to quick draw and and things like that. But then they still have, you know, their moral code of, um, you know, you only fire when uh, after the agreed time and things like that. <laughs> so, in the Greenbone Saga, you've got obviously it's it's pulling on a lot more um, Asian-inspired tropes than, say, the mafia tropes, although they are there. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, is there kind of any – do you think that you approach the, the sort of moral codes at all differently? Because I am a huge fan of Mulan, uh, the original um Disney animation. The animated uh, version, not the, yeah, the yeah, newer yeah. live action version. Yeah. Um but I know that there's quite a lot of pushback about it because there's all this talk. There's always like, oh, it's about my honor to my family and honor and honor. And it just it constantly comes back to this idea of honor. And I don't I don't know where it comes from in terms of where Westerners pick this up, but apparently it is quite you know, that is a, a total cliche, an Asian cliche that we have adopted in Western societies about honor and and so forth. And I just wondered if that played into at all sort of how you thought about the moral codes and establishing, you know, the the honor within the families and, and, you know, what codes they they worked with and so on, um, between the clans, because it does seem to be something that, on the one hand, everyone recognizes, but on the other, might not really be terribly reflective of, of the culture.
1: Right. Um, I did not really think about it in those terms. I wasn't trying to like lean in or out of the, I guess, the Western stereotypes. Um, and I just tried to really write this world and these characters in a way that felt as believable and realistic as I could, because you're right. I, I think a lot of stories that are set in the East that are, will like lean over emphasize certain things in a way that just feels cliched or heavy handed. And um, these I mean, or, organizations like the Mafia, like the Yakuza, they absolutely do have, um, these spoken codes of behavior and honor. At the same time, uh, you know, they, they act in extremely pragmatic and brutal ways that do not necessarily, uh, live up to the sort of the stated codes of, of chivalry that they would espouse. So that was something that I reflected in, in the narrative was, Uh, you know, there, there are honorable codes of behavior, um, including in, in the story, this code of Aisho that, um, those who are, don't wear jade should not be harmed. Um, but there are more, there are, there are quite a few instances in this story where that code gets broken, um, by the protagonists, by the antagonists, where they are, you know, in, in conflict with each other, trying to, to get the better of each other or trying to survive. Uh, And those, those codes are, um, uh, are a good ideal, but like most things in our world, we don't always live up to our, our ideals. A good example of this is part of their code or part of the societal uh, expectation belief in, in, um, in KCON, which is the Island that they live on. Is the saying "gold and jade never together"? So those who wear jade and have that power are not supposed to have political power. They're not supposed to be ruling. But the way that the clans work and the amount of influence that they have over politicians, the way they buy politicians and manipulate them, and like overtly use the political structure, means that gold and jade is basically, for practical purposes, uh, you know, a. a Meaningless uh, distinction. So um, that's that's what I tr- I try to do in the narrative is just not lean on on sort of um, heavy handed ideas, but to try and reflect sort of the nuance of the way the world works and individual characters and um, and just make it all feel as as real as possible.
2: I mean, it's not really surprising that. We you know we're talking a lot about moral codes because this is a society that operates in a way out of sight of and it's not beholden to established authorities. And therefore, a code of conduct is massively important because unless you're gonna unless say, the whole thing's gonna kind of crumble into chaos. Um it's just very interesting that, you know, that's why yeah, I think it's more important to establish these sorts of behaviors in these narratives than it is in, say, just, you know, another urban fantasy or another epic fantasy where you're just building a, a, you know, a kind of carbon copy of the society we recognize.
1: Yeah, I have talked about, I love talking about the topic of world building um, because I'm a world building junkie, but one element of world building that um, doesn't get talked about that much is moral frame and moral codes. Because you think world building and you think maps and uh, lineages of kings and magic system. Um, but uh, one of the most foundational things to any society, uh, including a fictional society, is the moral code. What is accepted? What is not accepted? What? Um, what? Influences how these characters behave in terms of what they believe is just and justifiable, um, relative to, you know, our, our particular frame of 21st century, uh, you know, democratic society. So, um, if you, if I've done my job correctly as a world builder, um, you sink into that world, and you understand, even if you don't agree that this person had to be killed, you understand why the characters do that.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, as, as you mentioned, like the clans in your world are not actually criminal organizations, but the way in which they behave and the structure that they sort of have just evokes that so well that... While you can say, okay, well, they're not acting necessarily most of the time outside of the law of their world, it still feels very much like that.
1: And I think there's a couple um, aspects to that, one being that they are acting sort of on a separate level than uh, the rest of their society because they have this magic resource. And so they're not really it's mentioned a few times in the stories that they're not beholden to the police for example like the police can't do anything about them they police their, themselves um and so that creates a, a sense of you know them not being beholden to regular justice system and then also they take a lot of actions in other countries that um are a uh, that are against the laws of those other countries because jade is this dangerous substance that for so long has not been um, been available or usable to people outside of this island. And part of um, what's happened in the modern world is that now that jade is available, it's being um, bought and sold and traded uh, sometimes by legitimate governments, but sometimes on the black market. And these clans that have controlled Jade for so long uh, are now getting involved in all these international politics and um, with other uh, organizations. Some of them also very sketchy and violent in their in their own right. Since you've
2: just you touched on it um, before about you know uh, talking about world building and the, the creation of and everything that goes along with that. Um, interestingly, you've kind of blended. A secondary world, or the you know the creation of a secondary world, um, with a recognisable world, i.e., our world. Um, but there's a really interesting combination because when we tend to write fantasy, I feel like people go one of two ways. They either do a couple, you know, a Middle Earth, like totally secondary world. It's not this world. It's just rather like this world, but it's not this world. Or you go down urban fantasy route where you set it in Chicago and it's recognizably Chicago and that's the way it is. But you've kind of done a bit of both. So what was the thinking behind that?
1: It was wanting to tell an epic fantasy style story in a... Recognizable modern setting that was not our world, and there was a time when I considered other options. So um, I actually, when when I was brainstorming the Greenbone Saga world before I, I wrote Jade City, I actually um, made notes in in a notebook where I said, "Okay, I can I can go three different ways with this." One is I just set it in our world, um, as we we know it today. So it, it would be that would be like a sort of a true urban fantasy. And then Jade gets discovered, and then there's kind of a gold rush to to um, control it, and organized crime like springs up around this. So I could have set, I could have had you know Jade discovered in in uh, modern day. Um, uh, Burma or something like that or and that would be one option the other option was to set it in an alternate universe version of our world so one in which like uh the United States and the UK and, and China and Japan they all exist but then there's like an alternate universe where where jade um, exists and has like influenced history. and like maybe Kcon is sort of a fictional island that exists somewhere, I don't know, in the South China Sea or something like that. And then the third and hardest option was the create a completely different secondary world. And of course I chose the hardest option because I mean, why not? <laughs> so um, I went with it though, because I wanted the freedom to build this culture and this society, from the ground up, as if jade has always existed. And that included things like creating a mythology around where it came from and why it exists, creating a history for this island, um, creating that that social code around the use of jade. And all of that um, was really appealing to me because I didn't have to feel beholden to anything in our world. I didn't have to be like, okay, well, this is, I don't know, Singapore. And now I have to be faithful, you know, to Singapore and and its true history and its geography and all that. Um, I didn't, that wasn't the story that I wanted to tell. Um, And so uh, as a writer, you sort of, you have made, you have these decision points early on. And um, that was one of mine was that, you know, I, I was going to do something that was a little different, which was tell an epic fantasy story and still have the vibe that I wanted out of like a, a gangster saga and set in the modern era with dark alleyways and men in suits uh, smoking in, in rooms and um, luxury cars and uh, submachine guns. Like I still wanted all of that, that vibe, but um, I also wanted the freedom of, a, of the secondary world, epic fantasy. So that's the where that's the path I had to take.
0: So I wanted to talk about kind of the structure of things like organized crime and as sort of, you know, in your stories you've got clans and, you know, everyone's pretty familiar with the mafia stories where it's about certain families and, you know, the godfather. But it feels, you know, it's, it's all about families, all about dynasties, and I was just wondering, like, because it feels a bit like this is just another way of having monarchies having where in the kind of epic fantasy medieval style stories you would have the kings and their children fighting over their land here you have basically the same thing families and and clans um but, I mean, do you think that there is kind of a fundamental difference between the kinds of stories that deal with monarchies and ruling families and a more the more morally gray <laughs> organized crime type families and and gangs?
1: I think there is a lot of similarity. I hadn't thought about it a lot until you brought it up just now, but there Uh, first of all, monarchies, the monarchy stories are, are very morally gray. There's so many, I mean, even in our own real world of, you know, family members who have totally backstabbed each other and betrayed each other and killed each other um, for, for the throne. Uh, And of course, you know, all the way to like game of thrones, which is very much a, a filled with morally gray characters fighting over the throne. Um, And, that is absolutely uh, a common thread that comes through in, in a story like mine that is epic fantasy esque, but has a different sort of clash of noble houses, uh, context to it. Um, and you know, all, all the way over to something like Dune, which also has a, a noble houses um, warfare story to it as well. I think there's just something f- fundamentally fascinating about that common narrative thread that it can be um, spun in different ways and show up in different settings, in different genres, different uh, historical periods, um, and and. Is is uh, is endlessly fascinating. Um, I was uh, I have I was not um, writing this book at a time when Succession was on the air yet. Uh, it came after I wrote the books, but now that Succession is on HBO Max, I have gotten so many people saying, "Oh, if you watch Succession, it gives me like Greenbone Saga vibes because of the whole uh, you know messy family." Um, struggles and and, uh, and dynastic um, lineage kind of storyline. Uh, and there's, I think it's because we all on some level relate to how messy the family dynamics can be. Um, and this is sort of those dynamics writ super, super large, right? Like most of us, when we have, squabbles with our grown siblings um, maybe give the other person the cold sho- shoulder at like a holiday dinner, but we don't, you know, hire someone to poison them, <laughs> you know? And so, so like, it's like those, the dynamics that we have as, um, as just like human beings trying to deal with our, our each individually uniquely dysfunctional families, but like written on this, Scale that is just beyond what most of us can comprehend, and is yet still, s- still very relatable on some l- weirdly deep level. Um, maybe that's why it keeps coming back in, in these different ways.
2: Didn't um, George R. Martin say that he based um, uh, *Song of Ice and Fire* on *The Wars of the Roses*, which is right. all about two houses fighting it out for supremacy? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, also, I mean, there's got to be a reason that soap operas are still so popular, and that's basically the the formula they use as well. Everyone, there's always some sort of like long-standing family that has ongoing sagas, uh, and I think that when when you put sort of family tensions alongside power and extreme wealth, yeah, then you know you're yeah. always going to have fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I was thinking Dallas or Bolden the Beautiful but yeah yeah yes. Downton Abbey too <laughs> yeah so given that these kinds of organized crime stories you know most of our reference points at least in for me uh are things like the mafia and so on it it feels very much like it really suits the the urban setting. And obviously, while you have a secondary world, you have all these, you know, really epic world-building fantasy tropes, it's also very reminiscent of our world. You're picking up, you know, as you say, like I didn't want to use Singapore's exact history, but you've got things inspired by and all this sort of stuff. It and it feels very much like it could be an alternate version of our world. Do you think that, like, you could get a kind of organized crime feeling, you know, that vibe of it in a fantasy that wasn't kind of urban fantasy? Do you think you could do it in, like, the medieval fantasy with elves and orcs? Or, I mean, is that, is it just too linked to these kinds of
1: gritty urban environments? I think it's intuitive to link it to of modern urban environments because that's how most of us think of, uh, of organized crime and, and gangsters today, and that's our, our touch point. But I absolutely think that it could work in other settings, um, and I I would love to see it. <laughs> work in other, other settings as well. But the one that comes to mind for me is uh, Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch, which has uh, a very strong thread of organized crime uh, to it and is set in of a uh, renaissance era analog of sorts. Um, so, uh, Absolutely. I mean, as long as there has been human society, <laughs> there has been uh, those people who break the rules um, and, and there's been organized crime of some sort. So I, I think that uh, it could absolutely work. It might, it would just take sort of a, a different form and, um, and, uh, and you could have it set in an ancient city. Um, and, and on the flip side, I think there's a lot of, um, Potentially great stories to be told with the sort of organized crime mafia tropes in science fiction as well. Uh, you could absolutely see, you know, a lot of that in sort of our um, fascination with science fiction stories involving bounty hunters and, uh, you know, space cowboy type. Like there's there's that oh, yeah. western vibe in like a lot of science fiction.
0: Oh, completely. And I think there there is arguably some of that already coming up in in some sci-fi, like the expanse. and yeah, definitely you know, as you get, but again, I was <laughs> I don't know, because you, a lot of them where where it does sort of fit in well, it's when you have these kinds of um societies elsewhere, you know, where there's a criminal underworld develops because there's a society there trading and um, you know there's always something that is scarce there's always something that is coveted and therefore there becomes you know something has value and therefore people are gonna buy and sell
2: outside of the usual taxed uh, marketplace or whatever um yeah look I'd like to see it set in Rivendell. Like, if you can do a gritty crime thing, organized crime, <laughs> set in Rivendell, then you know I will <laughs> be massively impressed because I still think I've—I did start reading. I've read a, half of *Lives of Lomora um, and that he, he still manages to convey a lot of grit and a lot of ugliness, even in this amazing kind of almost Venetian Renaissance setting. Um, so you know in that it, it kind of gels really well you still very much feel like it's an underbelly like it's mm-hmm. sordid it's dark it's things mm-hmm. going on in the corners but you know like if you try and think of it in some kind of woodland realm that's where it starts to be i feel like you know there is there is a a link between this kind of these kinds of stories and like really
1: urban settings and i i don't think it's urban settings so much as the tone of the fantasy so i think The potential disconnect that you're feeling between, say, high fantasy and a crime narrative is that, um, there's a, there's a certain, uh, I guess, um, vibe that comes with the, the truly like high fantasy, uh, subgenre where it's, you're not, there's, there's this sort of veneer of just, like goodness and nobility to everything where you're not diving into the seedy underbelly of society. Um, and also organized crime and criminal activity is so linked to the economic realities of a society. I mean, people going outside of, um, of the rules in order to profit or because they are financially desperate or because um, there is something that is prohibited and a black market springs up around it. I mean, those are all very, very connected to the economics of a place. And um, if you have a a fantasy story in which that is not um, elaborated on in any way, for example, Middle Earth, fantastic fantasy world, that has inspired millions of people, but I do not know how those orcs are paid. No, like nobody has been telling, no one has really dived as my, into like, what are the economic conflict points of Middle Earth? Like, are the, why are the elves wealthy? And why is their place so nicely outfitted? And, um, you know, are, are the, Dwarves and the Hobbits, like, pissed off about this. Like, do the orcs unionize against Sauron? Are they underpaid? Like, these things are not really being explored. And I think you have to explore the economic side of a society in order to tell a a good to to make that crime story make sense. I think that is an excellent
2: point, and I think it's completely that's completely right. Um, but I would really like to see the seedy underbelly of Rivendell.
1: Oh yes, I, I'm all here for. For more the morally gray, I'm sure it exists. elves who are, who are yeah I I am also sure <laughs> that it exists. If anyone is listening and has some some great suggestions, uh, let us know.
2: Yeah, I'd read I'd read a short story about the uh, what goes on you know uh, outside the beautifully constructed Council of Elrond where right. you know, that's all the cameras are allowed to see.
1: Yeah, exactly. Who are the like just who are just the lazy or like. Insipid elves who are like <laughs> hanging out like causing trouble and you know dealing whatever the elf equivalent of meth is like <laughs> who are those elves
2: okay we wouldn't be breaking the glass zipper if we didn't bring a bit about gender into the equation so Thinking of, you know, especially something like the Mafia, which we're all very familiar with, the structure of families like that is, historically speaking, quite patriarchal. And we've mentioned before that, you know, the women and children stay out of it. It's th- These are men's games, they're men's politics. I mean, why did you want to focus on the ascent of a woman within a crime family?
1: For a few reasons. First of all, because I am a woman who has loved these these gangster stories and, and organized crime stories. But, um, I was very aware as I'm watching them that women are pretty much never represented. They are either just absent or they are the very ignorant mob wife, uh, who, who sort of has no part in the business or they are victims. Um, they are characters that, uh, are harmed or they die and they they serve as a motivation um, for the male characters. So there was always that awareness on my part that I was really into these stories in which women didn't play a part. And um, when I was writing the Greenbone saga, I uh, did not want that to be the case in my book because even in extremely hyper-masculine societies and environments, women are not absent. They are there. Um, They uh, are marginalized, of course, but it's unrealistic that they don't appear in the story. Um, It's also unrealistic that they could be just treated as equals and rise to be a a boss in the society and not face you know, an enormous amount of obstacles and discrimination. So I wanted to um, to portray female characters in this very male-dominated space um, and to portray them succeeding on their own terms and against sort of everything that is in their way. Um, while I was writing the Greenbone Saga, I did some research and I found out there have absolutely been female crime bosses in our world and in our history. And there was a situation in Japan in which um, one of the top Yakuza bosses passed away and his wife um, became uh, the boss uh, for a period of time in his absence. Um, there was a fascinating um, article that I read about uh, the mafia in Sicily and how there are now, a number of godmothers who run um, mafia there because there has been a significant crackdown on organized crime and a lot of the men have been caught and put in prison. And so it is their wives who are running the business in absence and consulting with them when they go visit them in prison, but are like they're managing the day-to-day on-the-ground logistical stuff because the, their men are behind bars. So it is not like women don't exist in this world. They do. And it's myopic of, um, a lot of the, you know, organized crime stories that we consume on screen and in fiction to pretend that they aren't there. They are there. They just, um, they, their roles may be different and may be more difficult. And, um, also I set this story during a period of time that's analogous to the latter half of the 20th century, which was um, really a, a socially transformative time in terms of women entering the workforce and taking on a much more prominent and visible role um, in, in the world and in politics and government and all sorts of different spheres. And um, especially uh, post-World War II era, um when you know so many women had entered the workforce while the men were at war and they stayed in the workforce and there was just so much um conversation about uh, you know the role of women in society and how that was evolving and i wanted that to be played out as well in my story so it made sense for me uh to tell a story in which um the female characters are as much in the forefront as the male characters and they uh, they have different paths as well. I have like a female character who is uh, the the uh, she ha- does have that wife sister um, role uh, to the men. Like she's she's the wife of of the of the leader of the clan. She's a sister to two of his lieutenants, um, and and yet she still plays an extremely influential role in, in their lives and in the story. I have Aitmata, who's the main pro- antagonist um, who rises to power, but she doesn't do it easily. Like she has, there's a lot of um, barriers in her way. And she's, in fact, she rises because she's passed up in favor of a male heir who is not as competent as she is. And so she takes drastic action to seize power from him. And then I have Shay, who is um, a main uh, point of view character who uh, really struggles with the, the patriarchal macho nature of the clan that she's born into. And she leaves and thinks she's going to break free and live her own life in some other way and is drawn back in. Um, into the into the family and into its business, and has to reconcile that and figure out how she can um, both lead the clan and, and potentially change it for the better. So, um, so yes, that uh, I I definitely did um, want my female characters to be just as vivid as the male characters, but also to make them feel real, not to make them feel like you know they 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 were on equal footing um, in this world because. They, they're not. They wouldn't be.
0: Yeah, and I, uh, I'm, I'm terrible, and I cannot remember her name. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the character Puer it feels like she would just be a a victim kind of character. Oh, when? Yeah, it, but she's actually given more to do. I, I really liked that. Um, because basically, let's face it, if it was written by a man, she just would have been a. Quite pathetic.
1: Oh. She would have been fridged at some point. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, that was that was very deliberate on my part when I um, introduced her. Uh, I introduced her in a way that um, I knew I would subvert expectations later on because she is introduced as um, a male character's girlfriend, and the first scene with them is a steamy um, love scene after he's you know done some business and he shows up at her apartment. So I was leaning into that trope of like the you know the the um girlfriend uh you know of the mobster who's probably going to get killed <laughs> and and I did that yeah. deliberately because I wanted to uh to 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 twist those expectations.
0: No well I I liked it and you know please get you know more more of those twists because it's nice to see when women can be both you know like victims while also having actual personalities and <laughs> responses to things uh, themselves. So oh, there's
1: plenty more in the third book. So if you liked that, uh, you'll you'll see a lot more of of her of all the women in in Jade Legacy.
2: Well, I mean, I ju- I think you've sold the books beautifully. <laughs> In this episode, to anyone who's listening who hasn't read them um, and likes the sound of, of this, then you know where to find the books. Well, thank you so much
1: for joining us, Fonda. It's been really great. Thank you both. It's been a delight. And um, I hope you enjoy the third and, and final volume. It's been great chatting with both of you. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced
0: by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.